to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. But if you open with me either on your, in your Bible or on your smartphone or something at uh, Matthew chapter 9, then you can read with me. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. And this is a really such a beautiful portion of Scripture um, where Matthew, who wrote this Gospel, was called. He actually records his own calling by the Lord in, in his Gospel. And the interesting thing is the action all happens around a meal. Um, and if you've read the Gospels, you'll, you'll notice that quite a few things that Jesus does, and quite a lot of Jesus' teaching actually happens around meals. And that, and you'll, you'll sort of become, sort of start suspecting that meals are kind of important to Jesus. <laughs> um, and, and you know, meals are such a powerful thing, really. If you think about it. I mean, everyone does it. Right? I mean, everyone eats. We eat every day, hopefully, <laughs> you know, unless we're fasting or something. Um, and there's something special about a meal. You now, if, if, if you really like someone, you invite them for a meal. If you want to get to know someone, you invite them for a meal. If you want to do business with someone, you invite them for a meal. <laughs> and, and meals are really more powerful than we realize. And, and Jesus knew that, and he makes use of, of meals. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 9, from verse 9 to 17. Um, and it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. He just left everything behind and he followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So just notice the first thing that Matthew does is he hosts Jesus for a meal. The very first thing after starting to follow Jesus. And then verse 11 goes on. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that's Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not... To call the righteous, but sinners. Luke adds, but to call sinners to repentance. And verse 14 then says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So you see, it's still got to do with food. <laughs> In the previous part, it was about eating. Jesus eating with the wrong people, according to the Pharisees. Now John's disciples come and they ask about fasting. Still got to do with food. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom will, will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will tear away from the garment, and a worse tear will, uh, is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the, skin, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And Lord, we just want to thank you for your word. 
We thank you, Lord, that it's living and powerful, and we thank you, Lord, that it's ever-relevant. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and apply it to our lives and our hearts today, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I just want to highlight a few things out of this, this passage, but it, it, it is so, I just want to say, typical and... Um, it, it so, so epitomizes everything that Jesus is and does and how he relates to people. And there's so much that is so central to the gospel captured in this story and just portrayed in such a beautiful way. And I, I want to look at it under, under four headings. We, we see firstly a new calling. Matthew received a new calling. Um, a new community is formed. Um, a new, he becomes a new container. I'm thinking about the wineskins. A new container. And then we also see glimpses of a new covenant. So a new calling, a new community, a new container, and a new covenant. So let's, let's start with that. A new calling. Um, this is probably not the first time that Matthew has contact with Jesus. We see, for instance, in the other Gospels, that they often record Jesus calling his disciples um, when they'd already had contact with him. Like, for instance, in the beginning of Mark, he says to, to Peter and Andrew, come and follow me, you know, and I'll make you fishers of men. But we read in John's Gospel that quite a while before that already, they did have contact with, with Jesus. Andrew was one of John the Baptist's followers, and then John the Baptist is walking along and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew says, I'm with him. <laughs> you know, and he starts following Jesus. And then he goes to fetch his brother Simon Peter and says, come, we've, we found the Messiah, we found the Christ. And, 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 he's, and, 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 and Peter comes and starts following Jesus as well. But when he calls them along the seaside, they're still part-time following Jesus, and they're still fishermen. And Jesus says, come follow me, and they leave everything, just like Matthew did here. They leave everything behind, and they start following Jesus. So this is probably not the first time Matthew had contact with Jesus. He probably, I mean, Jesus' reputation had gone far and wide because of the ministry, the powerful ministry that he had, and the miracles that he was doing. I mean, he was healing people, the blind, the sick. He was raising the dead. He was, he was touching lepers. I mean, he was, and, and, and he was getting right up the nose of the religious establishment. So, I mean, he was making waves and people were talking about him. He was the talk of town. And, and Matthew had probably heard of him and he probably heard that all the wrong people, you know, people like me were hanging out with this guy. And he seemed to be fine with it, you know. But, but I'm sure in his heart, maybe there was like this, this check and thinking, but, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a tax collector. Now, none of us are particularly fond of the tax man even today, right? <laughs> I'm sorry if there's anyone working for SARS here, you know, but, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not always that pleasant to have to take your hard earned money and hand it over to SARS. Um, you know, especially if, you know, you, sometimes you look at government and you think, you know, Maybe they could have spent that a little bit better. But anyway, <laughs> you know, so, so I mean, but in those days it was much worse. I mean, in those days it wasn't a Jewish government that they were handing their tax money to over to. It was Jews handing money over to Roman occupiers and oppressors. It was the Roman Empire that had come to conquer them. And they were seen as the enemy, the oppressor. And, and now, these guys who were Jews, like Matthew, he was a Jew. And you had to sort of be able to read and write to be a tax collector, you know, because you had to keep records. So he could read and write. And if you could read and write, and there were only about 10 to 15% of people who could read and write in those days, then you could become a tax collector. And you could collect tax on behalf of the Roman oppressors 
from your Jewish brothers and sisters. And they were seen as absolute traitors. They were hated. They were despised. And you can understand why. And, and yeah, I mean, more than that. Apparently, you didn't actually get commission or wages as a tax collector. Whatever extra you could collect over and above what was required by the Roman government was yours to keep. So they extorted their own countrymen who were most of them, probably 90% of them living from, you know, they were subsistence farmers and that kind of thing. If you didn't earn a wage the day, you didn't eat. That was how poor most of the people were. It was, it was, and now you, you went and you took a big chunk of that money away from those people, your own people. So that you can understand why they were seen as absolute traitors. They were despised. They were hated. I mean, people, thanks, Mama Joyce. <laughs> That's my mother-in-law, <laughs> Mama Joyce. <laughs> you can understand why they were hated even more than Gentiles. I mean, even more than, I mean, the, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans because they were sort of considered half-breeds, but I mean, the tax collectors were like at the bottom of the food chain. They were like really looked down upon. So, I mean, Matthew must have thought, you know, he'd probably heard of Jesus, probably heard about the miracles, heard, maybe been even into, in contact with his ministry, maybe even in contact with John the Baptist's ministry. It, it says that John the Baptist baptized tax collectors amongst others. But maybe he had this check in his heart because he knew he's so despised. And everyone sees him as a traitor. Maybe he had this check in his heart, you know. I like what I see and I like what I hear in him, but, but surely he'd never want anything to do with me. And here comes Jesus passing by. And Jesus looks at him, sitting there in his tax booth, and he says, Matthew, come, follow me. And it's like, well, me? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure you want me? <laughs> it's not going to be a good public relations move to get me as one of your disciples. Are you sure you want me? I, I, I'm sure even his disciples, I'm sure even Peter, we had had to pay taxes to Matthew probably the day before or the week before. Probably like, what? Him? <laughs> now I have to walk around with this guy? I mean, the, the other disciples probably hated him as much as everyone else. You know? I mean, just, just imagine the surprise. This guy seen as a traitor, as a, I mean, they were seen as unclean because of, because they were tax collectors, they had to spend a lot of time with, with the Romans, you know, because they gathered, so they were seen as unclean, you know. They had to go and eat with, with their Roman masters, you know. And, and then they didn't eat kosher food, you know. They ate pork and, you know, all kinds of stuff that the Romans ate, you know. So, so they were ceremonially unclean. They weren't allowed into the temple even. They couldn't make sacrifices. They weren't just seen as, you know, as traitors and despised. They were seen as spiritually defiled and unclean. And here comes Jesus and he calls this guy. And he says to him, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And, and I think that's a, a real challenge to our mindset, even as modern people. Because we think, we, we tend to think, you know, am I really good enough to follow Jesus? And the bad news is, no, you're not. But the good news is, you don't have to be. <laughs> no one is. <laughs> no one ever was. You, you cannot be good enough to follow Jesus. You don't have to be. That's what the gospel is all about. Don't wait until you feel like you're good enough to follow Jesus, to answer His call on your life. 
course, you'll wait until you go to your grave. You'll never be good enough in yourself. But here's the point. Jesus calls people who aren't good enough. Jesus called people who don't deserve it. Because no one can. No one can. We're all like Matthew. We're all unclean. We're all not good enough. And yet we're all called. And Jesus says to us, to our great surprise, if we know ourselves, and if we know God's perfect standard, to our great surprise, he says to us, like he said to Matthew, come, follow me. And that's how Christianity starts. It starts with a call. It starts with a call. Unless you start Christianity by responding to that call of Jesus, then you haven't started Christianity. You're not, you're not a Christian. I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I mean, this is one example of how it physically is acted out. But I mean, Paul says the same thing in Romans 8, doesn't he? He says, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Who are those who love God? They are the ones who are called according to his purpose. Christianity starts with a call. Just like for Matthew, it starts for us with a call. And, and here's the thing, you know, I can make a call to conversion, but only Jesus can make a converting call. I can make a call to conversion, but only Jesus can make a converting call. When Jesus calls you, he does something in your heart. It changes you. That's what God's grace is. God's grace is the means by which he creates what he commands. That was a bit deep for some of you. <laughs> God's grace is the means by which he creates what he commands. Because the reality is God commands us to do what is right, but we as fallen human beings don't have the capacity to do what is right. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't even have, always have the desire to do what is right. We don't have the ability in ourselves to do what is right. And that's why we need the grace of God. Because it's God's grace that creates what it commands. And that's what, that's what, um, what Matthew experienced here. And, and notice Matthew's response to this. He left everything behind and he followed Jesus. Being a tax collector made you wealthy. I mean, that's why I could throw a big party in the next verse for Jesus. Because he had a lot of money. You could make a lot of money as a tax collector. There were benefits galore. There were serious fringe benefits. So you can make a lot of money. The tax collectors were, you know, social, uh, economically they were at, at the top. Socially they were at the bottom, but economically they were at the top. They were very rich. Which made them even more despised because people were thinking that's our money that you're living on. That's our money that you stole from us. By the power of the oppressors, of the Roman oppressors. Um, but they were very wealthy. And, and here, here's what Matthew does. He stands up and he walks away from all that wealth and all that security to follow Jesus. You can see something changed in his heart. He wanted Jesus more than he wanted that money. He wanted Jesus more than he wanted that wealth. He wanted Jesus more than he wanted that security. Something has changed. I mean, the only, think about this, the only reason, if, if tax collectors were really so despised and seen as traitors, the only possible reason you could have for becoming a tax collector is because of the money, because of the financial benefits. Th that's the only possible reason. I mean, who would want to be despised like that by the, by the whole nation? No one. 
There's no other reason. I mean, even their families hated them. <laughs> now I think about my, my brother, my one younger brother. He, he became a debt collector <laughs> for a while. He worked as a debt collector for a while. He's not anymore, but he... <laughs> my mom said, no, that's embarrassing. She's not going to tell people that he works as a debt collector. She's going to tell people he's a car guard. You know? <laughs> 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 now imagine what these tax collectors' families must have said to them, you know. I mean, they, they would never admit that they were tax collectors. No, no, we don't know. We've disowned him, you know. It's nothing to do with us, you know. So you can have no reason except the wealth to become a tax collector. And the very reason why Matthew became a tax collector, that very thing, that wealth, he leaves that behind to follow Jesus. He leaves what must have been his God, his idol. Because he now has a new God in Jesus. And he follows Jesus. Um, but then it's not just, it doesn't just change him personally. It doesn't just have, uh, a, it, this change of life doesn't just affect Matthew himself. Because in the very next verses, he throws, he hosts Jesus and he throws this big party for Jesus. And it's interesting to note that most of the people, people at the party were tax collectors. Which makes sense. Because no one else wants to hang out with tax collectors. So the tax collectors hang out together. Because no one else wants to spend time with them. No one else wants to be associated with them. So when he throws a party, they are tax collectors. Because they're the only people who want to hang out with him. People like him. Who are despised and rejected like him. They come and hang out with him. And um, imagine how Matthew must have felt about himself. He must have felt, oh, just Jesus is calling me to follow him, to be one of his inner circle, but I'm not fit to lead anyone. I can't save anyone. I can't change anyone's life. And maybe he was right. But, even if he felt he wasn't fit to lead anyone, he could host Jesus. He could serve Jesus a meal, host Jesus and host his tax collector friends. And he could organize the meeting between Jesus and his tax collector buddies so that Jesus could do for them what he did for him. So that Jesus could do for them what he did for... And, and I mean, that's the same with us. And, and you know, I just want to remind you, we've been speaking about this for a couple of weeks now and months already, about our host campaign which starts in February. You might think, oh, you know, I'm not... I can't lead a small group, you know. I can't lead people. I can't disciple people. You might feel a bit like, like Matthew. Don't worry. You might not be able to do those things, but you can host, you can host Jesus, and you can host them, and you can organize the meeting. And amazing things happen when you just host people in the presence of Jesus. Amazing things happen. Jesus does stuff that you yourself could never do. Never. And he might have thought of, Matthew might have thought of his past, you know, I'm totally disqualified. No, you're not. Your past doesn't disqualify you. You can host Jesus. Oh, I'm unqualified. I don't have the skills. You don't need skills. You just need to host Jesus. And Jesus does the miracle. I just want to show you the, this, this shows us the power of a meal and, and just, and even the, the, the Pharisees' response to it. 
He eats with tax collectors and sinners. You know, you can almost hear the outrage in their voice, you know. Well, look at him. What is he doing? I mean, why are they so outraged? He's just eating. He's just eating with them. I mean, why are they so outraged? It shows you how important meals were to them. See, meals break down barriers. I mean, we've all experienced that. Some of the best fellowship you've, you've ever had has probably been around a meal. It, it, eating with someone naturally just breaks down barriers between those people. And it facilitates relationship. Facilitates fellowship like few other things. And, um, I mean, many of us are business people, so if you want to do a business deal, often you'll invite someone, say, for a business lunch. But then it always takes longer than it would have taken if you had not done it over lunch. Why? Because you can't just rush through it. You, there has to be a connecting. There has to be some fellowship because the meal facilitates that, doesn't it? It facilitates that relationship. And um, not only that, I mean, in, in the ancient world, and especially in Israel, meals were seen as a, as a sign of acceptance and intimacy. Especially, I say especially in, in Israel with the Jews because the Jews, remember, had the kosher food laws. There were certain clean and unclean animals. You can eat the clean animals. You can't eat the unclean animals. You can't eat pork. You can't eat camel. <laughs> but you can eat clean animals like sheep and, and stuff like that, you know. And, and, and you couldn't even prepare kosher, clean food in, in bowls and with utensils and, and stuff that had made unclean food. You couldn't even buy. If, 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 if clean food came into contact with unclean food, it became unclean. So you couldn't buy kosher food at the local Gentile market. Because when the, when, when the sheep touched the pork, the sheep became unclean. <laughs> there was a schlep. You know, it was a big deal. You know, you, you had to buy at a special market, buy the food, special kosher food, you know, which had like the kosher stamp on, you know, at the special Jewish market. You had to prepare it in, in special kosher, clean, Bowls and utensils, you know. So you couldn't just eat, go and eat at a Gentile's house. Because when what was clean touched what was unclean, what was clean became unclean. So that separated the Jews from the rest of the nations. That's why the Jews were still pretty much uncontaminated by the rest of the nations, because they, they couldn't eat with them for the most part. Well, Orthodox Jews at least. Practicing Jews. And, and here comes Jesus. And he just, you know, just rides right over all of that and he eats with these tax collectors. And we see later on with prostitutes and with all kinds of unsavory characters who were very unclean. He just goes against all of that. He just throws out all of that clean, unclean thing. And, um, why does he do it? Let me just go on. Um, another thing that, that, that the power, we just see the power of meals is, you tend, if you think about it, you tend to become like the people you eat with most. Isn't that so? You tend to become like the people that you eat with most. Because when you eat with people, you really share your life. You share your heart. The, the, the meal sort of facilitates that. And as it goes on, you share more and more. Now, I've heard of so many people, you know, who, who go to, a, say, a small group. Um, and they they say, you know, the Bible study did change me, but not as much as eating with my friends, sitting with my friends around the table and just sharing my heart with them. That changed me probably even more. 
than studying the Bible with them. Because that's when what we studied and what was the Bible, the word that was in our hearts, really came out in our lives. And we really applied it to one another's lives. You become like those that you eat with most. And, and as families, that is true. And that's actually a very powerful thing. And that's why families should eat together. We should really try and eat together. And in our culture, where everyone just sort of eats in front of the TV, we should really appreciate the power of a meal. And, and as families, we should eat together. Not facing, all facing the same direction, you know, the TV, but all facing one another, you know, over the table. Because you become like those that you eat with most. And then, also, eating together brings together different communities. It, there's something about eating a meal together which is so powerful that it can bring together people from across all kinds of social, economic, and ethnic boundaries like very few other things. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. But there are natural boundaries between us as, as modern human beings, whether it's language boundaries or cultural boundaries or class boundaries. There are many boundaries that divides this world. And Jesus uses meals to break down all of those boundaries and to bring together a diverse community across those boundaries. Because all, I mean, no matter what class, culture, or, you know, whatever you're from, everyone eats. And when you share a meal with someone, you're sharing some of your culture, but you're also sharing something that they do as well. Maybe a bit differently, but they do it. And, and there's an amazing sharing and coming together that happens across a meal like that. And that's what happened here with, with, with Matthew. Notice when he hosts Jesus, he's already part of the tax collector community. That's the only community that wanted him. Okay, so He's, he's part of the tax collector community, and they're there. But notice that Jesus... He's also there. But not only Jesus, but Jesus' disciples. Because now he's become part of a new community. He's not only part of the tax collector community. There's now a different circle that he belongs to. A different community that he belongs to. The disciples of Jesus. And he brings those two communities together in this meal. Can you see the power of that? Can you see the power of that? Can you see how you, how we... Let's apply that to our modern situation. How we could bring together different communities which would naturally not come together and which would naturally not have contact with one another. We can bring them together over a meal. Can you see the power of that? And that's part of what our host campaign is about. We're wanting to bring together different communities over meals and host Host them in the presence of Jesus. And then just watch what Jesus does. Um, and, and, and here's the obvious thing that I've said before and that I just want to remind us of. You already eat. Everyone else already eats. If you're an average human being, you eat three meals a day. That's 21 meals a week. You're already doing 21 meals a week. Imagine... If you, to use Hermann's word, consecrated or dedicated two of those meals, that's less than 10%, two of those meals every week to intentionally spending time with people outside of your immediate family. Imagine you spent one meal a week with churched people and one meal a week with unchurched people. Over that meal, bringing people together and hosting them in the presence of Jesus. Imagine 
what your year would look like at the end of the year. Because most of us hear the call of Jesus to make disciples and, and we don't know where to start. Well, here's my suggestion. Why don't you start with a meal? Why don't you start by dedicating two meals every week, two out of 21 meals every week, to intentionally drawing other people in and hosting them in the presence of Jesus and see what Jesus does. Imagine if, if we as a community, every single one of us in the next year, every week, spend two meals like that. And it can be, it can be very simple. It can be, you know, at work you, you, everyone, you know, you take your lunch along and, you know, you just usually sit in front of your computer and, you know, eat your lunch, you know, as you're typing on the computer. But maybe say to your colleague that you, that you're wanting to build relationship with, listen, instead of sitting in front of our computers, why don't we just go down and, and, and sit outside on the, on the bench and, and have lunch together and just to get to know each other a bit better? Or it can just be, you know, why don't, why don't you meet me tonight at that coffee shop and we just have dinner together? Something like that. It doesn't have to be fancy. It's very simple. But if that became a habit for us, imagine how our community would look and imagine the impact we would have on the people around us. In, in marketing terms, there, there are two kinds of marketing. Now, I'm not an expert on marketing, but I want to apply this to you know, evangelism and discipleship, so bear with me. There, there's disruptive marketing and there's non-disruptive marketing. Disruptive marketing is when you know, you're sitting in front of your email and an email that you didn't solicit, you didn't ask for, just comes up you know, and advertises something to you. Or you're sitting there talking to a friend and your phone rings and someone's trying to sell some other insurance to you. It's sort of, it's completely out of the blue. You didn't ask for it. It completely disrupts your life and the flow of your life. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that you want to like, no, this is the 10th one this week. Go away, you know. (laughs) But sometimes we try and market the gospel like that, if I can put it that way. Through disruptive marketing. This, what Jesus did here over the meal, is non-disruptive marketing. You're saying to people, you're inviting people and saying to them, come and do what you're doing in any case with me. And then they can experience Jesus in an accessible way. Can you see the power of this? It's very simple, very powerful. Um, so that was a new calling that um, that Matthew received, and a new community, you know, that he became part of, and that we brought together communities. And now let's just look at a at a new container. So, so why were what were the Pharisees so afraid of? Why were they so upset? Why, why, why were they so outraged by this whole thing? Very simple. One word. Contamination. Contamination. And it's interesting. Jesus says, he uses a doctor image or metaphor here. He says, those who are well, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick need a doctor. What are you afraid of when it comes to sick people? Contamination. Can you see, even through the metaphor they uses, he identifies the problem. The problem is contamination. But he says, listen here, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And in order to minister to the sick, in order to heal the sick, a doctor needs to make contact with the sick. And Jesus says, I'm that doctor. And I'm not afraid to make contact. I'm not afraid of contamination like you Pharisees are. And you know why? Because 
when Jesus came and brought in, started bringing in the new covenant, he reversed the direction of contamination. Because Jesus, what, did, what happened right at the beginning of his ministry? He was baptized. The Father spoke out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, and anyone well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now, for the first time under the new covenant, that which was external has now been made internal. The Holy Spirit now lives inside. And, and Christianity starts like that as well. That's what the new wine is all about. The new wine of the Holy Spirit, the new wineskins. In other words, the law we have is no longer the law written on tablets of stone on the outside that we're trying to live out. It's now the law written on tablets of our heart by the Holy Spirit, the finger of God. Same finger with which he wrote on the stones, that same finger of God. Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, remember? With that same finger of God, he wrote on the tablets of our hearts, the new covenant, so that what was external is now internal. So that what was on the outside is now on the inside. So that what was imposed from the outside is now inspired from the inside. And that's the change. That's the change. And that's why the, Jesus can, under the new covenant, reverse the direction of contamination. I don't, actually don't have it on the screen now, but um, what's his name? C.S. Lewis. You, I'm sure many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. He wrote a very famous book called um, Mere Christianity. Um, and in that book, he talks about the good infection. He talks about Christianity as a good infection. Sorry, I just want to get my slides um, up here because I actually have a quote. Um, here we go. Let me try and read that. He says, Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have His way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing in a life which is begotten, not made, not created which always exists and which always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as He does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life He has by what I call good infection, good contamination. You realize you're, you're contagious. Every Christian is to become like Christ. The whole purpose of, uh, of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Can you see what Jesus has come to do? He's come and he's come to contaminate the world with who he is. He's come to contaminate and infect the world with his life. And when he infects us, we can pass on that infection. When he contaminates us, we become contagious and we start contaminating others. You know, when we went on, on a retreat now recently, one, one of the pastor's wives said, no, uh, uh, three daughters, you know, had, what was it? Was it chicken pox? I think it was chicken pox. You know, so, um, you know, we must be careful. And then Rochelle was like, oh, no, you know, the kids are going to get chicken pox. Kirsten already had chicken pox, but Justin and Ethan didn't. And she didn't want Ethan, you know, as a seven-month-old baby to get chicken pox. So, you know, how, how do we, you know, quarantine this, you know? Because, and, and you know, someone said to her, no, but, you know, or, or this lady said, no, but, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's already, pa you know, almost past two weeks, you know. So, you know, 
she, she, she's sort of recovering already, but, but then Rochelle's like, she thinks medically, you know, so she's like, no, but, but her sisters will get it and, and the contamination period or the, or the incubation period is like two, two weeks and then you're also, you know, infectious, you know. So, infection is a thing that can spread like this. And, and, and we don't realize, we don't always, we often avoid the world because we're afraid, like the Pharisees, of being infected by the world. The world's supposed to be afraid of us. We're the, we're the contagious ones. We're the ones that are going to infect them. If you're a follower of Jesus, then what is true of Jesus is true of you. The life that is in Jesus, the, the, the contagious, infectious life that is in Jesus is now in you. We don't have to be afraid. And we can safely host the world without being afraid of being contaminated. Um, so that... The gospel comes and Jesus says the gospel changes things on multiple levels. One of the levels is on an individual level. It says you don't put new wine into new, into old wineskins. Now, now, just to explain that how it works, and many of you obviously will know this. We, we, today we put wine into bottles, so we, we don't understand the metaphor. But in those days they used to use animal hide, you know, skins, and they put the wine in because they put it in when it's still sort of in the last stages of fermentation. So the new wine is still a bit bubbly, you know, effervescent, like sparkling wine, you know. So, so it actually, you know, it needs a container that can stretch, you know, and, and so animal skin worked well. But it need to, needed to be new, fresh, supple animal skin. What happened after a while, is after the new wine has sort of expanded and you release the pressure every now and then, you know, it settles and the animal hide actually becomes rigid and hard, old wine skins. And then if you try and put new, bubbly, effervescent new wine into that old wineskin, because it's so rigid and hard, it actually bursts, it breaks, it cracks, and it's broken. And that's why what it means, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. And, and here he's saying, there's a change that needs to happen in us in order to accommodate the Holy Spirit, the kingdom. There's a change. You have to become a new wineskin on an individual level. And, and that's what Matthew experienced. But also... And probably even more importantly, on a corporate level, he was saying to the Pharisees, you corporately, with your old Jewish mindset and your sort of Jewish institution mindset of we must be separate. And that's a thing, you know, the word Pharisee comes from the word separated. And they thought the crux of being faithful to God is being separated from the world. That was really what they thought. And that's why they talked about the righteous... Us, the Pharisees, and the sinners, them, the tax collectors. As if they were not sinners. And they're saying, and Jesus is saying that old wine scheme doesn't work for the new wine of the kingdom. The new wine of the kingdom bursts through our old categories. Because here's the thing the gospel tells us both that we are more guilty than we ever dared to imagine and yet more loved than we ever dared to hope. It tells us both of those things. And if you can't receive the first one, you cannot receive the second one. If you, if you can't marvel at how guilty you are, you can never marvel at how loved you are. And if you don't, if you like the Pharisees, don't think that you are so guilty and that you, all you need to be saved is to separate yourself from people who are guilty, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those, you know, really bad people. 
and hang out with people who are like you, not so bad. In fact, pretty righteous. They must have sounded like a bunch of surfers. Righteous, you know. <laughs> How are you doing? Righteous, you know. <laughs> but notice what Jesus says. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says, I have not come for the righteous, but for the sick. Now, in other words, I'm not come for, for, for the healthy, but for the sick. What does it talk, tell you about those who are healthy? What does it tell you about those who are righteous? They are righteous apart from Jesus as the doctor. What kind of righteousness is that? Self-righteousness. Jesus, why Jesus says, I have not come for the righteous. He says, I don't, I haven't come for those who consider themselves righteous. I have come for those like Matthew who know that they are sinners. I've only come to save sinners. And if you are such a sinner, I want to congratulate you. You qualify to be saved by Jesus. You qualify to be healed by Jesus. In other words, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, only those who receive the diagnosis of you are sick can receive the cure that makes them healthy. Only those who submit to the diagnosis and say, yes, okay, I hear it, I am sick, I need, I need a cure, can actually receive that cure. <clears throat> and then, Jesus brings them in together in a community that says, we don't have to separate ourselves from the sick and from the sinners, because we are those sick, we are those sinners, we have just received the cure, we have just received the grace of God. And it creates a different community from the Pharisees. <clears throat> I actually had a nice diagram up on my slides, which I can't show you now. But you, you get, you get, um, t- there are two kinds of communities. You get closed communities. Um, actually, there are three kinds, but I'm not going to focus on the third one. But the, the one is closed communities, which have a, a, a sort of an open center, sort of a, a fuzzy center, but then a closed periphery. And it's a periphery that keeps them together. And the Pharisees were like that. They, their boundaries, their periphery is what kept them together. And, and, and they had to set strict boundaries. Only those who keep, you know, those kosher food laws and, 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 and who keep the Sabbath and who keep this law and that law and that, those are all the peripheries. They can be on the inside. Jesus' community that he creates is a different community. His community is not kept together by the periphery, but by the center. Whereas the Pharisees had a soft center and a hard periphery, Jesus' community, the church, has a hard center, the gospel, and a soft periphery. People can come and go. What keeps them in the church is the center and their love for Jesus who is at the center. And not the boundaries on the outside like some other hedge that you have to... In a, in a, in a closed community that has a soft center and a hard periphery, it's hard to get in, but it's just as hard to get out. But in an open community that has a hard center and a soft periphery, a soft edges, it's easy to come in and it's easy to go out. But what keeps you in is your love for the center. Jesus, the gospel. That's what keeps you in. Very different communities. And that's the kind of open community that Jesus creates and he makes Matthew a part of. Um, so, what, what, what is this fasting? I mean, why did the, the disciples of John ask about the fasting? What does that have to do with anything? The point is, why I ask about fasting, you know, that he's saying, they're basically saying, you're feasting with sinners, but do you fast? 
And the point Jesus is trying to make is, you need, we need to, and you need, really need to get this. I really think that for this year there are many of us who need to get this. We need to first learn to feast with Jesus before we learn to fast for him. That's what the gospel is about. It's about first learning to feast with Jesus before we fast with him. And I have to hurry now because I'm out of time. But notice he says, do the, do the guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. What does bridegroom imply? Marriage, right? What is, what is marriage? It's a covenant. What is Jesus saying? You know, so often we have this anxious striving to try and earn right relationship with God. What is marriage? Marriage is where you make a covenant and you start with a permanent relationship and then live out of that permanent relationship. You don't have to strive to earn a permanent relationship. You start with a permanent relationship. You start with covenant. And what Jesus is saying is, I want to be your bridegroom. I want to, I want to give you not just some other, you know, opportunity where you can work hard and strive, anxiously strive yourself into right relationship with me. I'm offering you marriage. I'm offering you covenant. I'm offering you a permanent relationship to start off with. And then you live out of that permanent relationship, not in order to try and obtain it. Can you, can you see that? Can you see what Jesus is offering us? He's offering us a new covenant. He's offering us marriage. You know, when Rishal and I are married, yes, the ring on our fingers, we've been married you know, more than 15 years. You know, I don't get up in the morning and think, look at Rishal and think, you know, when she, especially when she's having a bad air day, look at her and think, you know, is she worthy to be married to me? She is married to me. It doesn't matter whether she's worthy or not. That doesn't come into the equation. I've already made a permanent commitment, covenant commitment to her. And we both live out of that permanent covenant commitment. And we both secure in that permanent covenant commitment. So even when we do things wrong, it doesn't change the, per- change the permanency of our relationship. It's the same with my kids. When, when Justin's naughty, and sometimes he is, I don't say, okay, now you're not my child anymore. When, it, when a child in the house is naughty, he's a naughty child. And he gets disciplined. He doesn't get thrown out of the house. And it's in that place of grace and marriage-like permanent relationship that Jesus calls us into. And we don't live for that kind of relationship. We don't live in the hope to try and obtain that relationship. We obtain that relationship and then we live out of it. Out of that security. Out of that being accepted. Out of that being loved. Even if we're tax collectors like Matthew. Even if we're despised like he was. We still receive that. So then you can, then you can put aside that, all that anxious striving. That, that is a striving to try and obtain relationship. And you still strive. But now you strive, like I do in my marriage with Rochelle, to try and love her. Because we're already in permanent relationship. We're already in covenant. Not in order to try and obtain it. One of my favorite quotes is by Dallas Willard. He says, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. 
In other words, when you're trying to earn relationship with, with God, then you're misunderstanding grace. But true grace actually produces effort. Isn't that so? Paul says so in, in one of his letters in Corinthians. He says, I strive and I work harder than even the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. In other words, the grace of God gives you the, the unmerited favor to step, even though you don't deserve it, not even close, into that permanent covenant, marriage-like relationship with Jesus. And then grace also empowers you to keep on striving to love Jesus and change Jesus. But it's not an anxious striving anymore. It's not a striving that says, ooh, if I'm not good enough, then I'm going to be rejected. No, you you already have the permanent relationship. And that's the new covenant that Jesus brings to us. And I just want, um, as we close now, I just want the ushers to, to hand out the elements of the communion. Um, we're going to quickly have communion. And that communion is one of the most powerful symbols of that covenant that we have. That marriage-like relationship. And here's the thing I want you to think about in closing. Here's the thing I want you to think about in closing. Jesus says to the disciples of John, listen to what he says. He says, is it right for the guests to fast while the bridegroom is with them? And then he continues, but the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast. Think about the price that it cost Jesus to become our bridegroom. It cost us nothing. It cost him everything. These elements of the communion, and as you receive them, just, just keep them with you. We're going to have communion um, together in a moment. But this cup represents the blood of Jesus, which he shed on the cross for our sins. And this bread represents Jesus' broken body, which was broken on the cross for our sins. And think about this, that Jesus loved us so much that he was willing for his blood to be shed and his body to be broken in one of the cruelest ways known to man. He was tortured to death so that he can offer us this permanent marriage-like covenant relationship in which we can be secure, be loved by him and be changed by him. And that is why he could also give us the new wine, which, which speaks both of his, of his blood and of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. So we, we're, not, we're not dependent only on ourselves to change, but the Holy Spirit is the new wine, changes us from the inside out. There's an effervescent new wine that comes into our life and causes us to celebrate with Jesus in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then I want you to think about this while, while the elements of the communion are still being handed out. Think about this. To Matthew, him hosting Jesus and his tax collector friends in a meal, it was just a meal for him. It was just a feast for him from his perspective as he was hosting it. But guess what it was for his tax collector friends? For many of them, because they met the bridegroom, Jesus, it was a marriage supper. It was a marriage feast. And I want to encourage you, and that's why I'm saying this. Let's use this, the host campaign that's going to start in February into middle March. 
Just six weeks. Just commit for six weeks. I'm going to host people. I'm going to invite people and host them. Either over a meal or even just serving a snack. But host them in the presence of Jesus. They only have to. You can, when you invite them, you say, you know, it's not like a lifelong commitment. Just, just give me six weeks. Just come for six weeks and come and eat with me for six weeks. We're going to give you the videos you can watch and we're going to give you the questions and the discussions, questions and stuff that you can talk about. And just facilitate Jesus' presence in their lives and see what Jesus does. But for you, it might just be a meal where you're hosting them, where you're inviting them, just come and have a meal with me. You know, for them, it can be a marriage feast where they actually meet the bridegroom. Where they actually meet the bridegroom, as you have. So let's do that. Let's, let's really this year, you know, I'm, I'm almost tempted to, I mean, what, what Herman said, you know, make a new resolution that you're going to consecrate this year to the Lord. But, but that's, that can be a bit vague, you know, how do I consecrate the year to the Lord? But, but what about making a specific practice and saying, I'm resolving, you know, amongst other things, one of the things I'm resolving to do is I'm going to give two meals a week to intentionally spending time with other people in the presence of Jesus, and I'm going to see what Jesus does in those people's lives. Think about this. I don't want you to make this resolution now, but I want you to consider maybe making it and saying, I'm going to eat meals with people this, week, this year. Just that. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, try and force things. I'm not going to try and shove Jesus down their throat. I'm not going to Bible bash them. I'm just going to eat with them. And see what Jesus does. Because Jesus lives inside of me. Wherever I go, Jesus goes. <laughs> because Jesus lives inside of me. I'm going to host people over meals in the presence of Jesus. And then see what Jesus does. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for, for this bread. Which represents your body which was broken for us. Thank you, Lord, that this is our foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast where we celebrate you as our bridegroom, that we are in a marriage-like covenant relationship with you, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you that you took the punishment that we deserved. Your body was broken as ours should have been. You stood in the place of judgment the judgment that we should have received. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that, that you love us that much and we receive that love this morning in Jesus' name. Let's eat together. And Jesus, thank you for this cup, which represents your blood, which washes us white as snow. Even though we are as guilty, as despised, as rejected, as shameful as tax collectors were in early Israel, thank you that you come and you wash away all our sins and you make us whiter than snow. You take away our sins and our guilt and our shame as far as the east is from the west. 
And you go so far as to say you don't even remember our sins anymore. Thank you, Jesus. We receive your forgiveness now. In Jesus' name, let's drink together. And Lord God, like Matthew, Lord, we want to, we want you to do for others what you did for us. Lord, let this be a year in which we invite friends and family and colleagues into your presence by inviting them into our presence. Let this be the year in which we host them in your presence so that they can experience your love like we have, your grace like we have, your forgiveness like we have. Lord, we just consecrate ourselves to you. We consecrate this year to you and we say, Lord, have your way. Let your name be glorified. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And Lord, I want to pray, Lord, above all, Lord, for every single person sitting here who might have, Lord, whether they, Lord, were not a Christian before this morning or whether they have been a Christian for a long time. I want to, every, every person, Lord, that, that feels, Lord, misgivings and doubts about your love for them. I want to pray that you'll come through your word and through your spirit and just overwhelm those doubts and just convince, Lord, not only their heads but their hearts that they really are loved by you and that you'll inspire all of us, Lord, to live out of that love, out of that forgiveness that we've received, out of that grace that we've received in a way that pleases you. I just bless every person here in Jesus' name. Amen.